While God created the world, the morning stars sang together. After God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam led the people in singing. God destroyed Israel's enemies under King Jehoshaphat while the choir sang. When Jesus was born, the angels sang, and before going to the cross, he sang. God rejoices over us with singing, and one of the only things we know for certain that everyone will be doing in heaven is singing. At New St. Andrews College, we understand that music is not an elective. It is central to our being and identity. We endeavor to train all our students in a joyful and robust musical literacy that will help them shape culture in a Christ-like direction wherever they go. Additionally, we offer the Certificate of Music in conjunction with our bachelor's degree in liberal arts and culture for students who desire extra music training beyond the regular music courses they will take as a part of the core curriculum. In the certificate program, you won't simply appreciate music or listen to it or talk about it. You will do music. You will study it, analyze it, read it, write it, sing it, and play it. You will receive private instruction in your primary instrument as well as secondary lessons in voice, piano, conducting, and other instruments. You will receive a solid foundation in music theory and analysis. You will study music history, church music, and music pedagogy. And when you graduate, you will leave with the ability to sing, play, understand, and steward music in whatever church or community you plant yourself. I'm Dr. David Erb, and this is the Certificate of Music at New St. Andrews College. Hi, I'm David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee and the host of the podcast found here on the Fight Lab Peace Network called God, Law, and Liberty. And I want to thank Chuck Knox, Toby and Gabe, the water boy, uh, for allowing me to sit in for them this week while they're taking a little break from their normal duties. And I'm really thankful for what they do because, uh, well, they are willing to take strong biblical stands in response to the issues of the day. And, and, and that's what I want to do today. Now, a little bit about me. I'm, I'm not set up to do a show with multiple people. So... Um, the format's going to be a little different today, but I think you're going to like it because I'm inviting to be my guest in absentia, Jeff Schaefer, who is the uh, an attorney and heads the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College. He's been on Cross Politic a couple of times, two or three times. Every time he speaks, it I, I learn something and it improves me as a believer. And so my guest today it will actually be Jeff Schaefer, who's, who we're going to take a video clip of comments he recently made at a program at New St. Andrews College. It's five minutes. And, and that will lay out the topic for today's show. And then I'm going to go back through and take some of the segments of that and give you my thoughts, my reactions, my observations, and what I took from what Jeff was saying. So that'll be sort of how the interview takes place today. Now, let me also just say this. I do not purport to speak for Jeff Schaefer, nor am I trying to interpret what Jeff Schaefer said. I'm giving you my thoughts, my reactions to Jeff, Jeff's comments, and I hope you'll find them helpful. So with that, let me introduce you to our guest, Jeff Schaefer. In uh, considering the contemporary cultural and political milieu, our descriptions of it now seem to emerge from us almost viscerally as we commonly offer labels for its character in terms like decay, dissolution, bleakness, chaos, incoherence, 
disorder, rootlessness, unwinding, the import and the goals of our presiding late modern philosophy are revealing themselves in increasing clarity in their inhuman deformity and viciousness. It would be redundant for me, I think, to recite the proliferating social ills that now stagger the mind. We know, though, that innocence is available to the young only if they have guardians postured in constant martial vigilance. The proverbial phrase, those who call evil good and good evil, who take darkness for light and light for darkness, or every man did what was right in his own eyes, are no longer taken as declarations of woe, but as templates for how best to understand and describe human freedom. And person's attainment of such opportunities for inversion is now understood as a principal purpose of state power. Now, I say these things not that we persist in lament, but to mention that our circumstance presents us an invitation and an opportunity for a long overdue reassessment of the foundations of social order, along with a consideration of whether the divinely governed and sustained nature of the cosmos might have some relevance to how we structure political society. For the fact of the matter is that we are now, I dare say, daily, being mercifully disabused of the misconception that the so-called secular order is benign and neutral. It is rather a diabolical death work. It has been a creedal aspect of contemporary public reason that the Christian faith must be subordinated to the requirements of the secular reason and scientific materialism that have asserted sovereignty over all public categories. Now, of course, this weak read of public reason has obscured its vulnerability. It has proceeded in parasitic reliance on the continuing private religious subscriptions of citizens under its sway in order to maintain an adequate moral and motivational substructure for community faith and law and the fundamental principles of social organization. This is something like the later life acknowledgement by Jürgen Habermas of the theoretical inadequacy of the solitary secular vision. But Habermas' solution to that problem cedes no public ground to the theological. He instead suggests encouraging religion's private flourishing as an instrumental supplement to the secular public project. Religionists are unlikely to miss the irony of Habermas inviting their contributions to rescue the very system that mandates their continuing marginalization. Christianity presents the revelation of he who created, comprehends, and defines the totality of existence. And as a result, it can only be proper that the political realm is shaped in and deferring to Christian wisdom. As a friend has put it, it belongs to the nature of Christianity to be established in the real world and officially recognized by the institutions that constitute and order the political community. Now, I'm glad for the recent ascendance of discussions in earnest on this point. I would just register one observation toward the conversation. To employ the law's levers in order to introduce a Christian influence upon its exercises while I certainly welcome that sort of improvement for reasons stated, it's not sufficient to the day, nor is the day ready for it, to understate the point a bit. 
Instead, in coming to grips with our cultural condition of everywhere instantiated unbelief, a response suited to it will require first a radical understanding of our epochal deviance in mind and in practice and an equally radical turning away from it. That is a prostrating metanoia, not an instrumental step in service of a political program, but a deep repentance as a necessity before God and thus a value only insofar as it is not pursued instrumentally. Now, let's take a moment to look at what Mr. Schaefer said in little bits and pieces so we can better appreciate the fullness of what he jammed into that little five-minute segment. This is the first segment that I want us to look at, and, and then I want to comment on. So, listen in to the very first part of Jeff's remarks. In uh, considering the contemporary cultural and political milieu, our descriptions of it now seem to emerge from us almost viscerally, as we commonly offer labels for its character in terms like decay, dissolution, bleakness, chaos, incoherence, disorder, rootlessness, unwinding. The import and the goals of our presiding late modern philosophy are revealing themselves in increasing clarity in their inhuman deformity and viciousness. It would be redundant for me, I think, to recite the proliferating social ills that now stagger the mind. We know, though, that innocence is available to the young only if they have guardians postured in constant martial vigilance. The proverbial phrase, those who call evil good and good evil, who take darkness for light and light for darkness, or every man did what was right in his own eyes, are no longer taken as declarations of woe, but as templates for how best to understand and describe human freedom. And person's attainment of such opportunities for inversion is now understood as a principal purpose of state power. One of the proliferating ills um, is what the common law would call the maiming of children under the guise of gender-affirming care. And another of the social ills that we're seeing is that those to whom the law of God and the common law would give a charge, on whom they would impose a duty to protect their children from being maimed, are parents. They're not only consenting to the deprivation of their child's healthy, functioning body parts related to their reproductive system, but in doing so, are depriving their children of the means that God intended for the creation of the parent-child relationship. It would have to be created artificially if these procedures are performed. Now, I'm not denigrating here, and hear me, adoption. There are circumstances where the natural means God has provided don't work. But we're talking here about the intentional destruction of those means provided. 
by God for the development of a parent-child relationship. And we are disordering the very nature of the family as God designed it. Now, Jeff mentions a template, and I believe that template is actually found in the very first sentence of the United States Supreme Court's decision in 2015 called Obergefell versus Hodges. That was the decision in which the Supreme Court said that states could not have statutes that mirrored the common law and biblical understanding of male and female and the necessity of male and female to the formation and creation of the marital matrimony relationship. The first sentence in that opinion was essentially the Supreme Court's version of Genesis 1-1, and, and it is the predicate upon which the court then reasoned to same-sex marriage, and from which we now reason to transgender ideology as a constitutionally protected right. Here's that first sentence, and listen to it. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain rights. What they are? Well, we're now finding out. It would be transgenderism, right? Within a lawful realm, the lawful realm now includes transgenderism, to define and express their identity. There is the foundation for transgender ideology that we come into this world with no given human nature, no meaning to who we are, all we are are globs of tissue, globs of matter, and it's up to society to define how we understand that stuff. Because there's no one to give meaning or purpose to that stuff. You see what I'm saying? So, this is the liberty that Jeff is saying now, that the law is to apply its force to protect. That's what we have to understand when our state legislators, and, and it's going to be happening in multiple states, bring forward bills to address this gender-affirming care for minors and the parental consent that, that's provided for those treatments. Now, I say these things not that we persist in lament, but to mention that our circumstance presents us an invitation and an opportunity for a long overdue reassessment of the foundations of social order, along with a consideration of whether the divinely governed and sustained nature of the cosmos might have some relevance to how we structure political society. Now, there is a sense in which uh, I believe Jeff is correct in saying that this stuff that's so unfathomable to Christians is actually a mercy from God in that it allows us to see what happens when Christians forsake the public square and when they forsake in bringing to the public square a, a cosmology and an anthropology associated with it that is found in the Bible. In other words, this legislation that will be considered in multiple states in the coming months gives us our Mars Hill opportunity to show that, that perhaps this idea of a neutral public square, a secular public square, isn't working out quite so well. And maybe we should need to reconsider that it's in God that we move and live and have our being. 
My question is whether that is what Christian legal and policy organizations and churches are doing. Are they taking advantage of this mercy of God to speak the truth into our culture that is rapidly disintegrating? And if not, why? And for that, let's look at a couple of additional comments that Jeff's made. It has been a creedal aspect of contemporary public reason that the Christian faith must be subordinated to the requirements of the secular reason and scientific materialism that have asserted sovereignty over all public categories. So Jeff speaks here about this almost creedal perspective that the Christian worldview has to be subordinated to man's reason and scientific materialism. Well, we actually see it in these bills uh, trying to stop gender-affirming care for minors and parental consent for it. It, it. It's found in the bills that have been filed in previous years. It's being um, seen in the bills that are being filed now or will be filed in January. And here's where we see it. When you read them, those bills make no statements about the very nature of what it means to be human rooted in just the common law. And and what it means to have a parent-child relationship and the natural limitations on the rights of parents uh, so that they conform to the duties of parents, which is to protect their child's body from being maimed. Instead, they turn to science, and that's all they speak of. But as a friend of mine said the other day to a Christian worldview organization, science cannot tell us what it means to be a person, to be a human, human being. And Christians should know this intuitively. There is no scientific hypothesis, no test that can be performed on molecules or matter that could help us understand that we're made in the image of God. And yet Christians are turning strictly to science to make their arguments. Now, here's the downside for this, friends. When Christians turn only to science to help us understand what is harmful to a person or a child, and the legislature can then substitute its judgment for what is harmful based on science for that of the parent, especially when the relationship between the parent and child has not been defined by anything objectively true and real, well, expect someday science to say certain other things are harmful that Christian parents do, and Christians will have supported the proposition that science alone defines what it means to be a person. Science alone defines uh, the relationship between the parent and child, and, um, and the legislature will substitute its judgment for that of the Christian mother and father. You see where we're going? Instead of telling the evolutionary biologist who spoke here in Tennessee, uh, your worldview created the problem, and would you now like to hear the gospel that gives us the truth about what it means to be a person? We seem to jump off of our belief system, subordinate our belief system, to jump on his train of reasoning. And that's what Jeff is saying. We are intentionally subordinating our worldview to that of scientific materialism. And surely that's an offense to God. Now, of course, this weak read of public reason has obscured its vulnerability. It has proceeded in parasitic reliance 
on the continuing private religious subscriptions of citizens under its sway in order to maintain an adequate moral and motivational substructure for community faith and law and the fundamental principles of social organization. Now, this is what I take from the segment we just heard. I take from it that what is happening here is that the evolutionary biologists, the people who are, are dominating our society and subverting and subordinating the Christian cosmology and anthropology, are relying on us to prop up and protect his children and his grandchildren from his own worldview. See, we, we are so quick to want to stop the harm that, that we will rush to the aid of the evolutionists. Now, I'm going to say something here that may be a bit tricky. But if you read Psalm 7, and there are other psalms like it, toward the end you'll see that God is saying, look, the wicked are digging a hole for themselves. They're setting traps for themselves. And my intention is for them to fall in it and reap the consequences of their sowing to the wind. And so when Christians run to the aid of the biological evolutionist so that his children and grandchildren might not be mutilated by his ill-informed children and grandchildren consenting, well, we may be kicking against the pricks. We may not be allowing God to let them fall into their own trap when we should be letting them fall into their own trap and present to them the gospel. This is something like the later life acknowledgement by Jürgen Habermas of the theoretical inadequacy of the solitary secular vision. But Habermas's solution to that problem cedes no public ground to the theological. He instead suggests encouraging religion's private flourishing as an instrumental supplement to the secular public project. Now here's my take on what Jeff says in this segment. And it's a trap I believe the institutional evangelical church falls into. We tend to think that the kingdom of God uh, pertains really only matters to private piety. And so what the world is hoping with its secular project is that we'll continue to be pious and that our piety might overflow enough to preserve their godless secular philosophy for the governing of society. And when we reduce Christianity to private pietism, we are subordinating ourselves to their creedal view that reason and scientific materialism are the only public categories and they should control everything. We're bowing the knee to a godless Nebuchadnezzar. Religionists are unlikely to miss the irony of Habermas inviting their contributions to rescue the very system that mandates their continuing marginalization. Now what I take from what Jeff said, and this is my take on it, is that when the church is silent about what's taking place with respect to this gender-affirming care, but not just that, but with respect to the United States Supreme Court's constitutional jurisprudence that is, that is godless at its very root. When we don't talk about 
legislation that is being drafted and argued in a way to undermine the gospel because we're content with just stopping the bad thing, then the leadership of the church is abdicating its responsibility to disciple its people. J. Gresham Machen, in his book Christianity and Liberalism, said that truth is best understood when it's presented in contrast to its opposite. And again, what a mercy God has given the church to say, expository preaching is great, but it will not become the idol that will prevent me from talking in my church and discipling my church on this important matter so that they don't rush out and join forces with the godless, the covenant breakers, and those under the wrath of God and the evolutionary biologists simply to stop a bad thing. I want my people to see that we need to restore the glory, the greater good of what it means to be male and female and mothers and fathers and the relationships between parent and child. And when we fail to do that, what we get is a constitutional jurisprudence that says liberty of the person is to define and express their own identity and all the consequences that flow from that worldview. Now I'm glad for the recent ascendance of discussions in earnest on this point. I would just register one observation toward the conversation. To employ the law's levers in order to introduce a Christian influence upon its exercises, while I certainly welcome that sort of improvement for reasons stated, it's not sufficient to the day, nor is the day ready for it, to understate the point a bit. Instead, in coming to grips with our cultural condition of everywhere instantiated unbelief, a response suited to it will require first a radical understanding of our epochal deviance in mind and in practice, and an equally radical turning away from it. That is a prostrating metanoia, not an instrumental step in service of a political program, but a deep repentance as a necessity before God, and thus of value only insofar as it is not pursued instrumentally. These last thoughts by Jeff are the ones that really drove me to my knees. That it is not sufficient for the day for us to just pass bills that stop things. That is an instrumental approach. An instrumental approach would rely only on science. It would continue to subordinate what both the common law and the common law informed by biblical cosmology and anthropology says about what it means to be human. And, and for having taken that instrumentalist approach for the sake of gaining political victories, the only proper response of the church is, is the metanoia of repentance that, that Jeff describes. And I, and I hope in this little bit of time we've had together, you have begun to get a greater grasp of the nature of the epoch in which we live.
and how anti-God it is and how often our own approaches to addressing this anti-God ethic is itself anti-God. Well, thank you for giving me time to be with you today. And to the folks at White Laugh Feast and Cross Politics, thank you for giving me the opportunity to sit in on your show. Putting off writing that proposal again? Yeah, we've been there. Proposal writing can be tough. It takes work. And if you're not careful, you can set up your company for failure. Well, that's where we come in. Smart Pricing Table is an innovative application that focuses on, well, the pricing table. Instead of a static document and constant back and forth, our platform creates interactive proposals that empower your prospects. Not sure if something is needed? Make it optional. Have complicated services that vary? Let your customer do the work with line item upsells. Have reoccurring services? Easy peasy. With Smart Pricing Table, you can create attractive proposals quickly. And our system is built for reuse, so you can get out of that hamster wheel. Give your customers choice and close deals quickly with Smart Pricing Table. Home. It's where you build your legacy. Where traditions are started, seeds are planted, meals are shared, and stories are told. We are Chris Natalie Carpenter, owners of Story Real Estate, and our team of top agents helps people find homes in Moscow, Idaho, and around the country. Have you thought about a move? Contact us to get connected with a top agent who shares your values and puts your family first. Or reach out to us about our Moscow Relocation Guide. Wherever you're looking to go, we can help you find home. Call us at Story Real Estate or visit us at storyrealestate.com and start building your legacy.